morning, as we go to the Word, we're going to the book of Revelation. That's where we've been. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Revelation chapter 7. You might think, well, it's Easter. We should be turning to one of the resurrection passages. But I guarantee you this. If I gave you a quiz this morning, I bet you know that story pretty well, huh? Who were the first people who went to the tomb? Mary and the women, right? And who did they see when they got there? Angels. Good. And who did they not see at first? Jesus. They didn't see his body. The tomb was empty. One of them turns around and they do see Jesus. And so we have this empty tomb. You know that story. And so I want to talk about the ramifications of the Easter story, because that is a great story. Go read that story. Go home today. Read it as a family. Read it with your kids. Read it alone. Just go read the, the Easter story. Remember those details. They're important. But I want to look this morning at the ramifications of that morning. Because what happened 2,000 years ago on a Sunday morning before it was even light outside, and there these women approached a tomb where the stone had been rolled away, and they looked and it was empty, it has effect for you and me today and forever. And so Revelation chapter 7, we began last week by looking how God was describing His people, the complete number of His people, and how when you look at that number, it is, it is almost innumerable because there was a multitude suddenly around the throne of God that could not be counted. There's Jesus in the center. There's living creatures, cherubim. There's elders, the 24 that are sitting around. There's angels all around. And then there's this massive crowd of people who are standing there just worshiping the Lord. And so we're going to take a look at that crowd. Now, as we go into this, you know, if you've been at Unity Church for any length of time since I've been here, you know the whole focal point of every passage of Scripture and every sermon I preach is what? Jesus. And I'm going to throw you for a loop today. Today, while you have Jesus right there, he's still the focal point, I want you to concentrate on the people. Okay, that's, It's rare that I will say that in a sermon, but I want you to look at the people that we're going to read about today in this story. So here it goes. Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to pick it up in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said, that's John speaking. John said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So as John looks and sees this multitude that's without number, he sees people that have come from all over the world from all times. They have been from places that speak different than you. 
They have been from people who have different color skin than you. They come from people who come from a different tribe, even in Johnston County, right? You've got the Johnson tribe. You've got the Wood tribe. You've got the Hudson tribe. And I know you had a hard time accepting another Hudson in the town. But you've got other tribes and clans and people and languages and colors that are going to be there. And what Jesus has done is he's gone throughout all of history and gathered to himself a people for his own. Now, it was God's desire when he looked out upon a people that were sinful, who were destined to die because of sin, that he looked at them and said, I want to save them. And by his love, he did it the only way that he could do it. So that on that day and that forever, there would be this group of people that he has collected for himself in heaven. They would be his servants. He has saved them. He will wipe away their tears. He will quench their thirst. He will feed their hunger. And he will be their God. He will satisfy them in every way possible. He desired to have that people with him. And so that's what John sees. Yes, you see Jesus, the lamb, as the focal point. But what you see around him is just as significant because you see a crowd of people who are no longer consumed with, how am I going to eat today? What am I going to eat? What am I going to order when I get to the counter? Right? He's going to feed them. They're no longer thinking about, where am I going to get a drink? Be it a little bit of water or another drop of alcohol. They're no more worried about, it's going to be hot out there today. I hope my AC is working. You don't got to worry about the sun scorching you because Jesus is your everything. When he saves people, he saves them completely. He brings them to himself and he's placed them into his kingdom where they will forever be around his throne, serving him and completely satisfied in him. Completely satisfied. The people that we look at in that passage, it's talking about they will be with him and be there forever. These are people that came out of the great tribulation, which means at some point they came and died. Their families put them into a tomb, put them into the ground. They died. They breathed their last. Their loved ones and family members wept over them. There was sorrow. There was pain. There was death. But for them to be singing and praising God in the presence, it means that those people, when we look at them, had been resurrected. They had been given life again. And the only way that could happen is Jesus. Now, when you go out in the world today, man, people love resurrection. They love the idea of living again and living forever. Everybody in the world does. It doesn't matter if you go to a Christian and say, hey, Do you want to be resurrected? Of course Christians say that. But if you go to a Muslim, if you go to a Buddhist, if you go to a Jewish person, if you go to an atheist, if you go to a tribe somewhere, if you go to the city somewhere, you ask anybody in the world, do you want to live a good life forever? Anybody who's got it together in their brain is going to say, yeah. And so there have been concepts and ideas and strategies about how to make that happen. Some of it is just to ignore it and hope it all works out. Some of it is to come up with other ways and opportunities to make that happen. See, everybody loves resurrection. I was just reading an article from a a scholar, a supposed Christian scholar who was describing the resurrection. He used the thief on the cross when Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise, that's great. And so the scholar went on to describe how everybody would be resurrected. And it would be like this great big reunion. You'd see your auntie and your uncle. You see your kids. You see it's going to be awesome and you're going to live life forever. The problem was 
the so-called Christian scholar forgot the not-so-called cross. You see, he came to this assumption in teaching the false gospel that said what's going to happen is that everybody will die and then suddenly appear with Jesus in paradise. But he only focused on one thief. The scripture makes clear that on the other side of Jesus, there was another thief who that entire time while he was suffering for his sin, never looked to Jesus and said, please remember me in your kingdom. The other thief said, "Uh -uh, I will ridicule you. You call yourself a Christ and you save yourself and you save me. He just wanted to keep living in this life. You see, in order to get to resurrection, the thing that in the entire world they want, whether it be through reincarnation, whether it be through just imagining, whatever it is, everybody wants that, but nobody wants what it takes to get there. The scripture says that there was one way to get there. That, that thief on the cross understood, I need to call upon the king of kings and the Lord of lords who will save me. Amen. And so he says, Jesus, who the very name means, the one who saves. Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. That thief on the cross will be a part of that number that we talked about. That multitude who sings out salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. You can't get to resurrection and you can't get to eternal life without the cross. You can't get there. It's the only way. On Thursday night at our Good uh, Good Thursday service, we read through the entire story and all the prophecies that talked about Jesus going all the way on that road to the cross. And as everybody entered into the service, they were all given one of these. A black X that they would put on their heart or put on their hand. And we all sat and we listened to the story of Jesus being crucified on that cross, which was ridiculous when you think about it, because Jesus had never done anything wrong. There was two thieves next to him paying the price for what they had done. Jesus was on that cross having never sinned. He didn't deserve to die. He was innocent. So why did he die? As people left that service, The opportunity was given to partake of communion, to remember that Jesus, his body was ripped apart and his blood was poured out in order that he might wash a people. And as people left the service, having heard about the cross, they took their sin and it was put on Jesus. Because the scripture says, if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What that means is when you say, God, I am a sinner. I have done wrong. I'm a thief. I'm a liar. I'm a gospel. I'm a luster. I do it all. The rest of the world might not know it. You don't have to be an all-out drunk, a pervert. You just have to be human. The scripture says when we confess our sins, he takes our sin off our heart and cleanses us and puts it on the cross. It's no longer on us. We're clean. But where is it? It was on 
Jesus. And when the Father looked on Jesus, what did He see? He saw my sin and He saw your sin. He saw the thief's sin and all those people in the multitude. He saw their sin and so He crushed His Son under the weight of His wrath. That's what happened. Jesus died so that you could be clean. The year before we moved out here, Easter, we went over to my parents' house. And the kids were out playing in the backyard. And Elijah, he goes out and he finds this pile of scrap wood. You can play with a pile of scrap wood in Seattle. There's no snakes there by those scrap piles. And so he went out and he grabbed a couple pieces. And he, he went into Grandpa's toolbox. And he found a hammer and some nails. And he's out there banging away. And he goes out in the back and he posts up this, this wooden cross. And he goes inside and he rummages around in, you know, one of Grandpa and Grandma's many junk drawers. They're not going to be very happy that I just told you they had junk drawers, but they got them. And they open them up. Everybody's got them. He he pulls out a Sharpie, shuts the drawer, goes out there, and he begins to draw on this cross. And he draws the body of Jesus, just this this impish, worm-looking Jesus. And he writes on the bottom of it, it says, the death of Jesus. And I went out there and I about lost it. I mean, I was just, I wanted to cry because I was just like, the boy put together a tangible gospel. You could go out there and see the gospel. And so we're standing back looking at it and I'm holding the Sharpie and he, he comes over and here's a picture of it we got here so you can see it. He comes over and he, he's like, oh, I've got one more thing. And I was like, Elijah, it looks good to me. I mean, you can stop right there. I don't think you need to add anything else. It looks full. He's like, it's not done yet. And I said, what do you mean it's not done yet? He grabs the Sharpie, runs over, and he writes it right up there in the middle. He writes right over the heart of Jesus, Elijah's cross. It was the death of Jesus on Elijah's cross. Elijah, as a young boy, he would have been seven years old, Jude's age. He knew that he deserved to die on that cross, but instead of Elijah dying on Elijah's cross, Jesus died on Elijah's cross. See, that substitution happened. Why? So that Elijah would not pay the penalty of God's wrath forever. As a result, Jesus died, Elijah lives. Elijah will be counted in that multitude, praising God and the salvation that he's given. You saw two weeks ago when Elijah was baptized in this water, having died with Christ and resurrected with Christ. See, if there's no cross... There's no resurrection. If you don't say, Lord, please forgive me, your sin does not get nailed to that cross. You can try every other way. There will be no other way for you to get to resurrection because there's no other way for you to have your sin pay for it. You will pay for your sin. God will bring his wrath upon you because you didn't ask forgiveness and have the wrath of Jesus cover you. This morning after our sunrise service, we went out and had, you know, just one of those wonderful covered dish breakfast meals that only unity could do. And I was talking with Wilma beforehand, and Wilma gave me a great comment. She's like, I like you in that pink shirt. I said, thanks, Wilma. And I said, I got to tell you the story about this shirt. I said, this one day, I washed the shirt, but I had forgotten to take a post-it note out of the pocket. And so here I had this great pink shirt with a bright yellow pocket. Like it just did not, you know, you can't get away with that. And so I tried everything to wash this shirt. 
everything, anything I could think of. I washed it with dishwashing soap. I used WD-40. I used goof up. I used every imaginable thing. Nothing would come out. It just kept adding up the smell, I think, of just different solvents. Nothing would wash it. And then I was like, there's only one more thing I can imagine that would clean this shirt. And I didn't want to do it because I thought it would just wipe it all out. And I threw it into the washer with a big old load of bleach. And I bleached this shirt. Let me tell you what, there is no yellow stain anymore. That bleach was the only thing that could clean the mark on my heart. And you and I and the whole world might try to clean ourselves of sin and make ourselves ready to be saved. But there is only one way that we can be saved. And that is by Jesus Christ, the great bleaching agent that God gave for us to come and cleanse us from our sin. If there's any other way, it's just still a blotch on our heart. It's still just sin on our heart until we give it up and we say, Jesus, please forgive me. You know what the great thing about Jesus is? We think, man, but if I if I have him bleach me. It's just going to take away all my personality. It's just not going to let me be Jason anymore. It's just not going to allow me to have any fun. I'm going to hate life. I guess I'll just go to church and it'll be boring. And, you know, we think things like that. If I, if I become a Christian or if I live for Jesus, oh, where's the fun in that? I'm going to lose myself in that. This shirt's still pink. Jason's still Jason. Elijah's still Elijah. But the thing is, we're who we were created to be. I was created to be Jason, who was without sin, so that I could actually have a good relationship with God, so that when he's gifted me with things that aren't of myself, I, don't, I didn't learn to preach. It wasn't even something I desired. God said, preach, and here's your gift to do it. And now, for some reason, I can get a microphone and gab about Scripture. That's just Jason. Some of you are great encouragers. Some of you are great craftspeople. Some of you are great singers. Some of you are so good at not saying anything, but coming up to somebody and just giving them a hug. God has gifted you as you. And when you have Jesus bleach you, he doesn't necessarily take away you. He enhances what you were called to be. He enhances what he wants out of you. And what happens is, at the end of the day, it's not for you to receive glory, but for you and the rest of God's people to be standing there saying, look how awesome he is. I'm totally consumed with how awesome Jesus is. This isn't about you. This is about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what he did on that day was he went and he died for your sins. And three days later, he conquered the grave. No one else has ever done that come from the grave. He did away with death so that he could look at you and say, I've done away with your death. Now live, live abundantly, he says. Live the rest of this life, not as if one day you will die, but as one day you will resurrect. Start living eternity now. Live for me now. And you will never experience more joy than when you say, okay, Jesus, here I am. Here's all that I am. Now, what do you want to do with me? Cleanse me and use me. If you pray that prayer, he will. The miracle of it is you will live and you will live for Jesus and you will never look back. You will never experience more joy, more peace, more hope than saying, Jesus, wash me now. 
Help me to live in you. Because you have nothing to fear now. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear pain or suffering or ridicule or loneliness or anything. God will be with you. Why is most the reason that we sin? Because we feel like we won't be satisfied in Jesus. Some people say, well, I've got to drink. I've got to be satisfied somehow. No, you don't. If you are completely and wholly satisfied in Jesus, you won't do it. If you're depressed, man, go to Jesus. Let him consume you. He'll help you. You're, you're tired. You're lonely. Guess what? The TV cannot be your best friend. You cannot rely on how many people are your friends on Facebook. Because you know what? You just got more people to gossip about you then. You need Jesus. And you should be able to say, you know what? He's my everything. And since he's my everything, I'm so consumed with him. Now I'm going to live for him. And I'm going to use that to bless other people. When I'm on Facebook, I'm not going to gossip about them. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to tell them about the Lord. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to encourage them. I'm not going to abuse the things that God's given me to enjoy. And so I'm not going to abuse food. I'm not going to abuse my relationships. I'm going to put God into those things. I'm going to live for him all the time. So you don't got to fear death and all those things. You have Jesus and the resurrection. Live for him. Be consumed by him. Start living eternity now. That innumerable number that are all praising God, join them now. Join them now. The great thing about being a Christian is we get to join with Jesus in a, in a taunt of death. And I was just overcome with a, some lyrics from a song I heard this, this week. When, when Jesus triumphed over the grave, he not only triumphed over his grave, he triumphed over yours. He was victorious over your death so that he would call you from the grave. His tomb that is empty means that your tomb will be empty if you're in Christ. And so this song, Death Be Not Proud, by a woman named Audrey Assad. I don't know anything about her. Uh, I just heard this song. It says, Death, be not proud, though the whole world fear you. Mighty and dreadful you may seem, but death, be not proud, for your pride has failed you. You will not kill me. Though you may dwell in plague and poison, you're a slave to fate and desperate men. So death, if your sleep be the gates to heaven, why your confidence? When you will be no more, you will be no more. When you will be no more, even death will die. Even death will die. Death be not proud. Death be not proud. Death be not proud. Because even death will die. You fast forward to the end of the book of Revelation. It says that Jesus takes death and throws it into the lake at fire. Death will die. Amen. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Death, be not proud. Did you hear that line that said, death, death, if you're the gates to heaven, then let me go through you, because you're not going to stop me forever. Death, you're going to die. If Jesus has washed your sin, Get ready for eternity. Get ready to have everything satisfied for you. If you have not called upon the name of Jesus to forgive you of your sin, then don't think that if you have an absent of your sin on the cross of Jesus, that you'll somehow tiptoe in 
that you'll somehow squeeze on in to eternity. It doesn't work like that. The God of heaven said, unless you call on me to save you, you won't live forever. In this moment, you need to recognize, you know what? Here's my cross, but Jesus died the death on my cross. And if you've never said that before, I'm not going to coerce you to do it. I'm not going to try to twist your arm. I'm not going to get some emotional music to play. I'm just going to say, if you've heard the truth about what Jesus did for your sin, then I would suggest you drop on your knees today and say, Jesus, please forgive me my sin. And he will gladly make that exchange. Why? Because he loves you to the death. And then he resurrected from the grave because one day he wants to come back and say, hey, you, come home. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the significance of the resurrection, but also the cross, Lord, that made it possible for us also to have a resurrection. It said that Jesus is the first fruits. And so we know that if our sin has been forgiven, that we're the rest of the harvest. He resurrected first, and we will resurrect next. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins. We know that we would not be worthy if it was not for what you did on the cross. And so we thank you for your sacrifice and substitution for us. We pray that you would wash us. Nothing else in this world can, and so we look to you to wash us. We pray, Lord, that as we become clean and we become your servants and your worshipers and we're consumed by you, we wouldn't become hypocrites. We wouldn't be Pharisees. We wouldn't just be pious, pompous. We pray that we'd become humble servants of the King. That we would serve our fellow man and our wives, and our kids, and our neighbors, and strangers, and even terrorists. Lord, that we would somehow be used to bring the gospel to people that were just like us. We pray, Lord, that you would be everything for us, that we'd be consumed by you. So, Lord, if there's anything today in the lives of believers here today that we hold up more than we hold up you, that we think about more than we think of you, that we think will satisfy us more, even just as much or even just a little. Lord, that you would come in and take those away, Lord. We pray forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we thank you for forgiving us in Jesus' name. Amen.